Look, this is not the first year of mine that I'd consider lost. I had a spell after my separation from Jenny in the early to mid-aughts that was, in a word, untethered. An unproductive time being adrift and without purpose spent wandering around the seedier corners of downtown Los Angeles, going for meandering midnight walks past the Cecil Hotel and thinking that place could use better lighting. It's weird to just lose an entire year of our lives, isn't it? And to have experienced so much and have it all be so foggy. If you asked me about something that happened in 2020, I couldn't tell you with any degree of certainty what month you're referring to. We did have some fun in maybe Marjun, but then we also went to a field of rocks once and I want to say Augtember. Who knows? And now as vaccines reach people and everyone's finally paying attention, we're just sort of slowly emerging, cicada-like, into the light once more, after all this time cocooned in the underground. And not unlike H.G. Wells' time traveler, we're going to get spat out in some world that looks like the one we knew, but one altered in some small and perhaps lasting ways. The people we encounter in this new now may be shorter. Many will stagger about like a fawn on its new legs, unable to adjust to life out from under a gravity blanket. Some will speak in a kind of hybrid English, having learned just enough of a few languages from the Duolingo app before abandoning the service midway through and resigning themselves to being hounded by an electric owl for the rest of their days. They'll definitely be hornier, and I bet none of us will be able to maintain eye contact for more than a few minutes without auto-scanning the area around each other for the leave meeting button. Bold new worlds, making it all count, putting our imaginations to work for good, that's just the kind of thing we're talking about this week when we mark one year of the pandemic by slipping through the glowing portal at the edge of our understanding that leads us to the deep night. Friends, hello, it's me, Dale Seaver, and I'm so pleased to be your host, guide, and guru through this next hour of regrets and revelations. We come to you tonight, as we always do, from the foul banks of the Gowanus. And time sure moves differently for the Gowani. One could throw a tire into those fetid waters, and it would emerge two weeks later as a slick and glistening black diamond. Although that probably has less to do with time and more to do with rare earth minerals and the immense pressures found at the bottom of that poisonous trough. I like thinking about transformative magic, and that's what originally drew me to the work of my guest tonight. I was so pleased that it could work to speak with writer, comedian, performer, and DJ Diallo Riddle. Now, you may know Diallo from his work on Comedy Central Southside or from his prolific time on Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, or perhaps you've watched and enjoyed the very funny program Sherman Showcase. Now, if you've not seen that show, seek it out. It will be well worth your time. And we talk about that show and some of its influences along with a few other points of connection, so let's go to it. My conversation with Diallo Riddle. 
Giallo Riddle, welcome to the deep night. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Dale. Absolutely. Uh, uh, thank you for joining me. Uh, and I bet our listeners will find this conversation very similar to the one between Oprah and Meghan Markle. I've got just as much to say about the Queen. Yeah, yeah we're going to topple a monarchy tonight, aren't we? Uh, <laughs> speaking of that, have you been doing anything or do you plan on doing anything for marking one year since the pandemic began? Uh, you know, I inadvertently marked it, uh, over the weekend. Um, we, my wife and I are those people who stand in line and wait for extras at the end of the day. And for the first time ever, we lucked out and we got the first shot, you know, they, they, they had no more appointments. They had some opens as they call them. And, uh, we were both able to get the, uh, first dose of the Pfizer. So almost a year to the day that we went into hiding in our house, uh, (laughs) we got the first shot. Now I, I hope we didn't, I hope we didn't jinx it by, uh, you know, we we actually dined outside for the first time at a restaurant immediately after getting the vaccine and found out a couple hours later that, no, you should probably still go home (laughs) and just go. (laughs) But, you know, like we still had on masks and everything. So don't please don't at me, guys. Uh, You know, we 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 dined safely outside uh, and we you know, it's it it does feel like the beginning of the end uh, in a good way. Here's the good news for all those people looking for like some hardcore vaccine information. Once you get the first vaccine, uh, they immediately schedule your follow up. So you really feel like the end's in sight. And then I guess two weeks after the uh, second vaccine, you're in the clear. Now, I will say that my sister who's a healthcare worker got the second vaccine and was pretty sick the next day. Um, uh-huh. But she was only sick for the next day. And the it was almost like someone had flipped the switch the following day, like she felt fine. But uh, right. Yeah, I think I think we're getting towards the end here. I'm happy. I feel that way, too. And I'm glad that you got the first dose and are on your uh, path there to the second one. Uh, tremendously, uh, just a sense of relief, I think, is finally starting to settle in. Um, well, I'll, I'll ask you this, uh, because I ask everyone who comes on this program, would you be interested in joining a commune that I've started here in Brooklyn? <laughs> Which part of Brooklyn? Uh, well, this is located in Carroll Gardens. Uh, you know, here's the only problem. We have to go to Chicago to shoot our Chicago show. If, it, if that yeah. if that wasn't the case, and I would, I'm, I'm dying to see. I think it's the longest I've gone without uh, seeing New York. I'm I'm desperate to get back. You know, my brother actually works for the uh, Brooklyn uh, public access station, Brick, and yeah. uh, and you know, so I, I I'm dying to get back there and see him and the family. Um, and shout out to Brooklyn because uh, I, so many of my good friends live there. But I don't think yes. I'm joining the commune just yet. Okay. Well, uh, the reason I was hoping that you'd at least consider it because because uh, you have a you are a person with a deep and vast musical knowledge, and that's something yes. we need. Yeah. Because well, I'll, we have... I'll send some records. I'll send some records. Do you have oh. a record player? Yes, I do. Okay. Okay. See, I'm not going to do a Spotify list or any of that nonsense. I'm going to send you some actual 180 gram records. And okay. uh, you'll 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 have a good time. This sounds good. We have one lady that's playing, uh, uh, learning the dulcimer. So it's a lot of Peter, <laughs> Paul, and Mary around here. <laughs> There's only so many times you can listen to uh, Puff the Magic Dragon. You know what I mean? It's all dulcimers and sitars. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, but it brings up the, the real question here, Diallo, is mm-hmm. where did that fluency in so many styles of music start for you? Uh, my father was a jazz record collector. Uh, uh-huh. You know, he loved jazz, and uh, our basement was filled with. I think at some point he had counted three thousand 
plates, if you will, of, wow. of jazz vinyl, um, which is funny because when I became a, when I graduated from school, I became a DJ. And at one point I looked up and I had, I think 10,000 uh, <laughs> because, you know, it was, it was my way of living. It was my way of supporting myself. So, you know, I, I had to collect those, but dad, just out of a, a love of music was collecting it. Um, you know, I, I, I know for a fact, the first record I ever bought was a hard day's night. I bought it for $5 up at the, at the corner record store, which used to be a thing in a lot of communities, you know, there's sure, a record yeah. store and, uh, never forget one of my father's friends telling me you can't let him listen to that white music you'll get the wrong rhythm but you know Ringo Starr taught me uh Ringo Starr and Animal from the Muppets taught me uh rhythm and uh and yeah and kids at school used to they didn't make fun of me but they knew that I'd listen to some music that wasn't on the radio for you know like is you know growing up in Atlanta everything was V103 and it was it was R&B and soul um, and some of the kids used to say, you, you're that kid who likes Elvis. And I was like, uh, the Beatles, you know, <laughs> to them, it was just that I, they knew that I wasn't listening to whatever Teddy Pendergrass had put out that week. But, um, but I, I absorbed it all, you know, growing up in the South, you know, we, we had R and B on the radio. We had, uh, Miami bass and sort of Luther Campbell, uh, two live crew music at the parties. Um, cause that was really before outcast and, and goody mob and other artists came along and sort of led the way on sort of the Southern renaissance of hip hop. Um, And then of course, you know, I was still, you know, I, I was still listening to the Beatles by way of that. I got into, you know, some new wave records and, you know, the first CD I ever bought was by the Pet Shop Boys. So I think that for whatever reason, I was always open to anything where the drum was, was, you know, the primary instrument. I'll say to this day that like, you know, my, my love is electronic music. Um, but in, to me, hip hop is electronic music because it's made with the same, you know, programs, and the same apps that, you know, dance music is made with. It's just a different BPM usually. So right. um, it's my, my love of different types of music has been there basically since the beginning. Right. Wow. Well, I feel like uh, m- for myself, I have a kind of retail music education and I probably owe a great debt to the DJ at the local Kmart because there was a lot of time <laughs> spent at the layout count- or layaway counter. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, my mom loved my... that layaway counter. What, whatever happened to layaway? Well, I guess we all got credit lines with credit cards, but yeah, layaway used to be serious. <laughs> that was the thing. Yeah. If you wanted that, that sweater, thing, you could have it in three weeks. <laughs> three weeks oh when i wear that sweater <laughs> things are it's an take. honest way of living we we had a very honest way of living back then in terms of credit yes, <laughs> yes we did um well it's interesting though that you it seems like really the the drums and the beats are such a key part of it uh because uh in comedy that translates very directly uh there's so much that's about timing and rhythm that's in the comedy and it's evident in many of the things that you've worked on well, two things I'll say right off the bat. Um, Dave Chappelle and Questlove have always said that every comedian kind of wants to be a musician. Every musician kind of wants to be a comedian. Like yeah. the, the art forms are not very far apart. But um, in addition to that, it's so funny you bring up timing. I, I took my kids to a drive-in uh, theater, you know, COVID drive-in theater being popular out here these days. And uh, we went to go see Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Yeah. And... Um, my my kids were laughing at all the jokes and I was like, man, Pee-wee's timing is impeccable because sometimes they didn't even understand the joke, but they understood that the joke had been said and that it was a good joke. And I'll give you an example. There's a part towards the end where, you know, I, I, 
I hope some of your, your listeners have, been, have seen Pee Wee's Big Adventure, but there's a part at the end where the nun is arguing with the little kid over the bike and Pee Wee's standing there disguised as another nun. And she says, oh, Rusty, you've been an inspiration to us all. And Pee Wee says, I'll say, I'll start a paper route right now. And he takes the bike and he walks off. My kids bust up laughing. It's one of my favorite jokes from the thing, too. <laughs> and then one of them said, Dad, what's a paper route? And I was like, oh, gosh, son, that's so funny you asked that. A paper route is how people used to get their newspapers. Somebody, usually a kid on a bike, would run around and on, on a bicycle, and he would just throw newspapers up to your door. And I saw my kids looking confused, and they were like, what's a newspaper? <laughs> so they were too generations removed from the idea of a paper route and yet they still do that a great joke had been told just from the timing just from just from paul rubin's impeccable timing phil hartman and paul rubin's impeccable script and tim burton's direction and also i gotta say this because this goes back to music again uh danny elfman's score to peewee's big adventure uh it's almost like hamilton the play the music does not stop from the first shot like there are very few scenes with no music and the music always heightens the emotion of the characters involved. It's just, you know, I saw another movie. I'm not going to say what movie because I know some people involved in it, but I just saw a comedy <laughs> movie over the weekend. And there was so much catalog slash, you know, free library music in the background. And that always makes me feel like I'm watching a Lifetime movie or just a really cheesy right. and bad TV movie. And I'm like, none of my favorite movies have this ridiculously anonymous background music in any scene. You know, in any scene. And um, and I think that just goes to show that, like, the best directors and the best creators realize how important the music can be in terms of, you know, it's just as important as the wardrobe and the setting in terms of, of placing the, the viewer in that scene. Right. And, you know, you really have placed music in a primary role within the program Sherman Showcase. I mean, yes. very obviously, it's a, it's a music you know, environment in which, <laughs> which it's set. But uh, there's so many uh, beautiful ways in which the music serves the comedy, the comedy is serving the music. And uh, yeah. to your point about having there be music created specifically for a, a film or television endeavor, um, it, it's creating a whole world and a whole uh, uh, entire entity that moves along <laughs> forward, sometimes in many directions. But it's so important to do that. Well, I think it's very important to do that. And it's so funny that we just finished talking about Pee-wee's Big Adventure because I always felt like Sherman Showcase was my attempt to sort of recreate the magic of Pee-wee's Playhouse, which was a <laughs> show that was on when I was a kid. You know, I think yeah. that, um, so so clearly Paul Rubens had a huge effect on me. But yeah. um, <laughs> I also think that anytime, again, every musician kind of wants to be a comedian. I've, we've met so many musicians and rappers in, in our time in this business who are like, you know, I may never be the musical guest on Saturday Night Live, but I want to do, so I want to show people that I'm funny. I want to show people that that's another talent I have. And similarly, a lot of comedians are like, gosh, you know, I had this great idea for a song and I, and I got a melody, but I don't know how to play an instrument because the public schools failed me. You know, like this is, <laughs> these are the kind of conversations that we typically hear. And to the point of Sherman Showcase, you know, that was, that to us was a chance for us to truly get creative with every comedic idea that we ever had. And, and, and put it right next alongside almost any idea for a song that we ever had. I mean, if anything, there are sometimes we had ideas for songs and we were like, well, what's, what's going to be funny about this? You know, um, and that's the only limitation that we have with Sherman is that ultimately it is a comedy. We can't just do a 
three minute serious earnest you know singer songwriter type song there has to be some angle to it but you know growing up with the with the eclectic taste that we had you know we were like well let's when we do an episode about a character who's like prince let's let's write the song that we wish prince had written and let's write it as good as we possibly can let's write it as well as we possibly can so that we're not doing a disservice or making it seem like we're making fun of prince like you know the Almost every artist that we have on Sherman Showcase is either based on a genre or an artist that we actually truly, truly like and love. So it doesn't do us any good to try and make fun of these artists, you know. Uh, <laughs> if anything, we're if anything we're trying to add to the canon. We're trying to add to the uh, to the Spotify playlist that some of these artists, you know, might might be on. And in a couple of cases, they have been added. You know, Vic Mensa is a rapper, but we heard that he did an amazing Prince impression so we brought him on to play our character charade on the show right. and charade is a very princess character and uh along the way you know we we came up with this great song along with one of our songwriting collaborators uh fonte coleman we gave it to Vic. he did a great job now when you spotify uh when you go to the spotify playlist for Vic mensa our song pops up alongside some of his you know more like edgy rap songs, even though our song sounds like a Prince song from 1987. So, you know, <laughs> well, thank you, Algorithm. But yeah, we, we always <laughs> wanted to make the songs really, really good to us. It's not a funny song. To, to, to produce a, a bad song is like bad singing. Bad singing is never funny. You know, right. Um, right. it's right. far funnier if you have a person who can actually sing, singing well, but singing about something ridiculous is our theory. Right. And the, the reference uh, has to be right on uh, to the to the genre, to the thing that you're kind of making yes. fun of. It has to actually yes. be that thing. And then it's a hundred times funnier. And if I do a Desmond Decker song, it needs to sound like, oh, man, is this Desmond Decker? You know, like right. it just has right. to be. Yeah. Not unlike something like The Mighty Wind, where that music is actually really good. A hundred percent. You know, I, that's another great influence on us. We always say, you know, there's certain things that had a great influence on when I say we and us, I'm usually referring to uh, both myself and my writing partner, Bashir Salahuddin. Um, We tend to be greatly influenced by uh, Christopher Guest and of course the great movies that he made, including A Mighty Wind and uh, The Muppets, like I said, and The Simpsons. I always feel like The Simpsons is sort of like, it's silly, but it's silliness for for smart people it's silliness for people who can get the citizen kane reference you know if that's if that's where this if the comedy takes you so um but yeah christopher guest is a huge influence on us and you know i grew up loving waiting for guffman and best in show and 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 only discovered um you know his earlier work you know i only discovered that like much later in life um i didn't even know it existed and to this day still have never really gotten gone as deep into the Monty Python woods as some of my other uh, colleagues. But, you know, we always say you're as influenced as much by what you don't know as what you do. And at this point, I'm almost scared <laughs> to watch certain stuff because I'm like, I, I hear it referenced too often. I don't want that in my brain. So yes. there you go. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's uh, interesting. You bring up the idea of these, um, uh, the, the references and things, uh, because it's, it's not just music. It's, it's pulling from all aspects of culture. And I wonder if you just have a particular mind that's good for that. You meet people like that. But the fact that you could watch the Black History special that came out, <laughs> and there's a reference to things that I, quite frankly, thought were just a fever dream, like I had imagined it, like The Last Dragon or Blackula. I mean, 
it's uh, phenomenal. Is that uh, between the two of you, you have that kind of knowledge and ability to call from Yeah, uh, you know, black culture, is, black culture is a little bit crazy in the sense that, like, there's so much that I feel like has never been addressed or tackled or parodied or um, even just not even referenced, just to serve as some form of inspiration for something that's never been seen before, because you yeah. can only parody so much before you try to create something original. I think the Sherman showcase in, in its own way is a hundred percent original. Yes. It looks like soul train. It looks like solid gold and some of those dance shows. Um, but it really is a lot more like a Wee's uh, playhouse in terms of execution. Every single fake commercial that goes into the show is truthfully something that we'd like to see happen in real life like you know every time we cut to the trailer for a fake movie it's kind of a movie that we wouldn't mind getting some money from hollywood to actually go out and shoot even if it's on a shoestring budget you know again like we're, we're black guys who grew up we had a, we had a love of spaghetti westerns and you know not too often as a black creative in this business do you get to you know do anything that even looks like a spaghetti western but we did it you know we called it black guns white bandits and it's one of my favorite things in the regular season but especially with that um especially with the black history special, we just, we wanted to make a, an episode of the show that was completely untethered. that could almost serve as an introduction to the world of Sherman showcase as much as it serves as, you know, as far as I know, the first ever uh, half animated uh, special dedicated strictly to black history month. Um, and we right. even threw in that part with the roots because we were like, well, let's, let's have something in there so that maybe one day school systems will actually show this, during Black History Month, they'll have to edit out some things, obviously. Um, but <laughs> yeah. you know, let's let's give them more than what I always consider sort of the uh, Mount Rushmore of Black History Month, where it's all you know, like George Washington Carver and Mary McLeod Bethune. Like you know, you could you hear the same names, and these names only come up during Black History Month. You, right. It's never like <laughs> you're never walking around in September. It's like, but you know, what? I was thinking about the other day, George Washington Carver. You know, like <laughs> that poor man, he only gets one month out of the year. It seems like so. <laughs> We were like, let's just do something that makes us laugh. You know, we all come from big families, Every, pretty much all the writers on the show. And uh, one thing when you grow up in a big family, regardless of whether you're black or white, Italian, whatever, whatever, whatever your ethnic group is, if you come up from a big family, Mormon, if you come up from a big family, um, I actually don't know if this is true about the Mormons. Maybe some of the Mormons can let me know. <laughs> I feel like when you're sitting around that big table with eight people that you all share a last name, everybody's trying to be the funniest person. So it's a little bit of a competition and you're jumping in and you're stepping over people and you're interrupting people, talking over people. You know, that's a little bit how I feel like Sherman's uh, comes to be because on the one hand, we'll be talking about uh, things as diverse as old black, you know, black themed after school specials. But then, you know, you turn around and uh, you're talking about, oh, isn't dance hall kind of like a funny, you know, is it, there's something funny about dance hall uh, music. You know, let's do something with that. It's really just a, a, a riffing and flowing conversation um, with a lot of improvised twists and turns that we eventually try to distill down into a script and then shoot. Um, right. And it's not always easy. It's, it's not always easy to find a narrative through line, but I feel like especially with that Black History uh, special, we were able to, you know, string together a song. It's an it's a hour of sketch comedy. Usually I feel like an hour of sketch comedy is really hard to watch one of the things I'm most proud about about that special is that I feel like you don't feel the length, you know, like when the when yeah. the thing is over and you look up and you're like, oh, that was an hour. Like you don't feel like because even Saturday Night Live, which amazingly does it every week, they're definitely sketches you skip past. 
And uh, I like to think that we, we, we did not do that with our special. Yeah. Well, I have a little bit of experience with sketch, and one of the things I appreciate, and I think it's all right in line with everything that we're talking about, is the fact that you can't really be casual. It, it all has to serve the joke or serve a joke. Yeah. And that comes yeah, down and, to the and music, by the way, sometimes the writing, it can everything. be very subtle. It can be like the most subtle joke. I, you know, we did that whole we did that whole sidebar where, you know, Sherman, you know, owes money to the Ethiopian mob, which is something that we made up. We don't know that there is an Ethiopian <laughs> right, mob in right. real life, but we thought who who seemed like the nicest people on the planet Earth? Honestly, the Ethiopians <laughs> seem pretty darn decent. And so of course we made them the mob and then uh, so we, we went off on an Indiana Jones tangent, but right. so it's not always necessarily like a joke, a joke, a joke, a joke, but sometimes it's just, you build out a situation, um, that we think is really funny. You know, that sort of flow was there on, on Mr. Show back in the day. And we, mm -hmm. we loved watching Mr. Show when we were kids. So, you know, we try to take those lessons and, and apply them to our show. Yeah. I, I um, Mr. Show fun fact. I actually heard that, uh, through a friend that, uh, Bob Odenkirk is a fan of Sherman Showcase, and he did not know that the person he was talking to had any, you know, link to the creators of the show. So that's the kind of compliment that means a lot because <laughs> to us, he's a he's a hero. Sure, yeah, that's great. Well, speaking of influences, uh, you had a there was some video that was out there where I think you were mm -hmm. giving a tour of the very space you're in, and uh, I know you have some experience with uh, working on Late Night with Fallon. But one of the things you held up in that room and that little video i've never seen anybody else have it but i have it too and it's this book about inventing <laughs> late night <laughs> all about I love steve that allen book. it's a yeah. great book i've never it's known i didn't book. didn't know anybody else bought it <laughs> so okay I'm, I'm gonna give you some 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 hot gossip okay yes i thought for years so i i i did not buy that book i was at fallon and we were brand new there. Uh, Bashir and I were the fourth and fifth writers that he ever hired, and everybody could fit onto one floor. And we yeah. hadn't taken over for Conan yet. But slowly, more people came on board, and we're almost, of course, launching the show, trying to figure out what that show is. And Wayne Fetterman, who is somebody who a lot of your listeners might know, very funny yeah. guy. He's been on a lot of episodes of Curb, and he's a very funny stand-up. Wayne Fetterman comes into the office, and he knows I'm a history buff. I was a history major. He's like, okay, you got to read this book. And he hands me that book. Yeah. And I'm like, Wayne, I'm under deadline. I'm not going to read this book. And he's like, read the book. And so I read like a few pages of it. And then I kind of put it away for a couple of years. It wasn't until years later that I was like, you know what? I think I'm ready to read this book. And I read it and I read it from cover to cover. It was such a great book because yeah. it sort of, it, it, you know, I'm a big fan of the Jack Benny sh radio show from like way mm -hmm. back in the day. I, I, I love studying how comedy has changed and everybody who ever changed comedy just seems like a genius to me. So the fact that Jack Benny was like, I don't need the jokes on my own show. I'm not going to do Bob Hope's show. I'm going to yeah. do my show and play the straight man. I think that that was genius. You know, you read about Richard Pryor, that's genius. You read about, you know, so many people who changed the game. And I was like, man, I got to get this book back to Wayne. It's been years. We live on opposite coast. Now I'm going to give it back to Wayne. And I opened the book and inside the book, it says to Jimmy Fallon, <laughs> you know, something like, I hope you really enjoy this book. And, and, and when did Steve Allen pass? Ooh, it's been a few years. It's been a few years, right? Yeah. So I believe I'm going to have to go back and find the book. The book was signed by the author of uh -huh. the book. 
So it was a gift to Jimmy. And if I had known it was Jimmy's book, I would have never taken it home that day. <laughs> it was it was a gift to Jimmy that I guess Wayne Fetterman ended up with in possession and the get, handed to me. I thought, not that I would treat Wayne any differently than I would treat Jimmy, but like at that point, I was like, I got to get this book back to Jimmy before the NBC <laughs> mafia comes and, you know, right. kidnaps my kids. So, <laughs> but I love that book. I think that book has so much good stuff in it. Um, I, I love reading about when he was doing his radio show in the Midwest. Or, or You probably know this story, but like, I want to say that, you know, he had to, he briefly went down to Texas and he realized right away that he was not going to be any good being on Texas radio because he was trying to make up <laughs> everything he said. He tried to relate back to cows or something like that. Like Steve <laughs> Allen tried to relate everything back to cattle. And he realized really quickly that he wasn't going to be any good at that. But just the idea that he had like these various radio shows where he was trying out bits. And it just shows you how like late night TV really is a call back to an earlier time. Like it really was about the bits. It really was about the segment. It really was about the, the sketch of the game that you can involve the callers in. Um, it, it's just a fascinating book. And I think that there's, there's gold in them. There are pages like it's just yeah. so good. Yeah, it's a, is it true that a lot of those tapes were burned or something in a, in a fire? Yeah. Do I remember that correctly? So you can't even watch this stuff. No, you can't watch this stuff. You know, I feel like every time I get really into something, <laughs> somewhere in the <laughs> 50s, there were a lot of fires and they just burned. And everything yeah. just burned in the 50s. It's always like, and, uh, you know, the, he, he, did a, he did a joke that lasted three minutes and the crowd laughed for a total of five minutes, a world record. Unfortunately, there is no footage <laughs> or right. like it's just why was everything burning in the 50s i don't know but i think it's yeah. also because everything was made of a film back then and just film is like kindle you know right. it's just gonna go straight up kinder right. kinder not kindle no, if it was no. kindle we probably still have it kindling, kindling. that's what i yeah. was thinking about yeah tinder box of kindling perhaps um, there you well, go well, and with Steve Allen and uh, Jack Benny, again, the timing, it comes down to that and just the complete mastery of, of the pause, the, the, the back and forth. Um, another person that you worked with who uh, I uh, have great fondness for, David Allen Greer, when you were working yes. on the Chocolate News. Now, let me ask you, is he, he seems like he's exactly who he is on stage and, and off. Is that, the, is that the truth? Pretty much. Uh, Dave is... David is just David, you know, he's absolutely, I've had the pleasure of working with a couple of people who are like that. Marlon Wayans is another person who, that crazy person who you see on camera. Yeah. Not, not 180 degrees away from what he is in real life. (laughs) And, And David is sort of the same way. I've always, as an actor, I've always looked up to certain people who are able to carry themselves in a certain way and play really convincing straight men. I think David Allen Greer was that for, in living color, even though obviously David played lots of really broad characters, he was also able to pull it in in sort of a Phil Hartman way. Phil Hartman being another person who I yeah. just love and respect and admire. Yeah. Um, you know, like to me, David Allen Greer, Phil Hartman, there was this uh, generation of guys who just were really good at that. And we had just been shooting web videos, uh, Bashir and I. And mm. granted, one of our videos went viral in the early days of YouTube. It got 2 million views. Which back then got you phone calls from agents, you know, and uh, we had to go on CNN and talk about it. But uh, I remember that, you know, we had a little bit of success on YouTube and that was what got us our very first job on TV, which was with David Allen Greer, a show called Chocolate News. We were the baby writers. Most of the writers in that room, uh, I would say, are they ironically, they were younger then than I am now. 
Um, <laughs> but at the time, like we were truly baby writers. And, and when I'll never forget one time, one of the writers pitched a joke and the punchline was, I don't remember the wording of the punchline, but the punchline was Jennifer Lopez has a big butt. You know, that was the punchline. Right. And I remember sort of raising my hand in a skittish way and saying, you know, JLo has been off the scene for a while. This is 2008. I was like, JLo has been not really around in the same way lately. What if we say Kim Kardashian? And the producer at the time pointed at me. He's like, yeah, that's good. That's a good new reference. And that was like before anybody had like, you know, really put Kim Kardashian's name in jokes. But, um, you know, when you're the baby writer, you, you, you win just for being something slightly different. Nowadays, yeah. I'm ashamed that I pitched a Kim Kardashian <laughs> has a big butt joke. But at the time, you know, it, it, it was helpful in the room. Right. We gain wisdom, thankfully, as we age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, you, if I had stayed there, that'd be really sad. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I was thinking today how much I love David in Amazon Women on the Moon. <laughs> so good, right? right? So good. I mean, like, David has done movies that I... You go back and if you go back and watch Amazon Women on the Moon, which truthfully as a kid, I I always tried to sneak in viewings of it because it just sounded like something that I wasn't right. supposed to watch, right? Like right. it just and I think there is a pair of bare breasts that I probably went looking for as a as a young boy. But yes. uh between that movie and Kentucky Fried, uh the movie, um you know, the Kentucky Fried movie, uh these were these were the only way that you could get sketch comedy back then unless you were watching Time out live, we you know week to week. So right. uh, yeah, David Allen Greer, he's just he's a he's a he's a he's. A, I think he's a national treasure. Yeah, well, you, you'll get no uh, uh, argument from me. Now, uh, <laughs> knowing that we were going to talk, I actually went back and because uh, I had watched Sherman's uh, uh, and I watched Southside too, which is terrific. Um, Thank you so I, much. I, I had gone back and called up a couple of the Solid Gold episodes on YouTube, uh, <laughs> which. You know, I watched it a little bit as, as a young person, and I yeah. remembered it, with Marilyn McCoo and, and whatever else, the <laughs> puppet. But, boy, it's a slight show, isn't it? There's not a lot to it. It's a slight what? A slight oh, show. <laughs> it's a slight show. And you know what? It's um, we, we, we took a little thing from that. We saw an episode, you know, that was just probably posted on YouTube or something like that, where for every dancer, they were like, she's... Five two, one hundred pounds, and she really likes baseball. Here is Cheryl, <laughs> and we were just like, "That's not appropriate." Like, <laughs> that was okay. Like, give this woman's information out like that. So that's why in season one of Sherman Showcase, we always have like you know spotlight on the dancers where we give you a yeah. bunch of you know inappropriate or fi- you know fake facts about each dancer because strictly because it's solid goal. We were just we couldn't believe that that was ever really acceptable. You know, we'll yeah. be like, "Here's yeah. Ciara." You know, she's into the New England Patriots, and she lives at one one three two. You know, like she likes taking long walks at night by herself. You know, like right. we just, right. we're just like, what's the worst information you could give about people? Well, and people had to latch onto the dancers because nothing else was going on in the show. There was nothing Dion, going on. You know, she looks surprised <laughs> to be there every time she's there. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of fuetes and a lot of like spins and twirls back then. Like yeah. you know, guys and girls alike. Like. It was just like, we got to hit him with some razzmatazz. Do a twirl. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's huge. It's shot in like a hangar. It's huge. There's like multiple levels and everything. Anyway. Yeah, I know. I know for <laughs> a fact, Soul Train was shot on the Paramount lot for for decades, for decades. And I want to say Solid Gold, it's not, it's, it's not entirely impossible that it was shot in a Santa Monica 
hangar, you know, like the Santa Monica airport, you definitely those hangars were used as sound stages. I, I want to say maybe now and then. Yeah. So who knows? Well, I also love the uh, sci-fi elements that you bring into Sherman's and, uh, watching soul train i mean that train is a space train so uh it makes sense right <laughs> right that you would bring that in uh i love we are big sci-fi nerds we're big sci-fi nerds and you know again it's about working in genre that uh that you know as a black content creator you don't always get to work in you know like we we, we wanted to do something with sci-fi like i said we wanted to do something with cowboys uh the right. film noir segment that we shot you know i i tried to I worked with our director, Matt Piedmont, who's a brilliant man, you know, to try and pull in everything that we ever, that I ever wanted to try, you know, growing up loving Double Indemnity and uh, Kiss of Death. You know, Richard Widmark was one of my favorite bad guys as a kid. My father, <laughs> he would always show me these black and white movies. If we were flipping through the dial, which today's kids know nothing about. And right. uh, <laughs> if he was flipping through the dial and we came across anything in black and white, my dad would be like, ooh, black and white. And... He would sit there for no no more than ten seconds. He could tell you what the name of the movie was, who was the who were the main stars, and what it was about. Because yeah. as a kid, he had gone to all, every double feature, you know the you know because that's what kids did. You know they would just sit in the movies all day and watch movie after movie after movie. And uh, you know so to see movies like that, he 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 gifted me. Uh, I like to say he gifted me an education in movies where you know I was able to see all these great post-war movies that took place in Los Angeles with the gritty gumshoe and the untrustworthy femme fatale. And, and, you know, those, those, right. those movies informed my, my childhood. And, and I, I do want to say like, uh, you know, there was, um, there was also something great about the fact that he always put everything in its, uh, in its proper context, you know, right now, HBO max and Disney and so many, even uh, Turner classic movies, they're all putting the, um, the the warnings or the disclaimers, you know, in front of Gone with the Wind and uh, and uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, you know, and I actually support that because I, I think somebody does need to say, hey, we're showing you these movies. You can love these movies. Just understand that they're from an earlier time and some of this stuff is messed up. Right, One of my right. favorite movies as a kid is King Kong. I love watching Kong break down the gate and tear up the train system. And climb up to the top of the of the uh, Empire State Building, you know, and 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 I would, I love that movie, love it, love it, love it. I would never watch it with my kids and not <laughs> say something like, "By the way, these depictions of Africans are deplorable. Like this is right. the worst. This is the worst stuff." Just understand that the people, you know, who made this back then, like these were acceptable views of what African people look like. And I'd even go so far as to tell them, you know, in some ways, King Kong, you could argue is a uh, a stand-in for the ultimate African brought back to New York, you know, and now he's tearing the place up. You know, like, you can, you can let them know that there's symbolism in that movie as well and still be like, but by the way, for tech, technologically speaking, like, these special effects hold up better than some of the CGI that's made today. You know, <laughs> yeah. I think that, you know, artwork is always complicated. The artists are always, you know, complicated, and it's okay. It's okay to have that conversation and still enjoy king kong from 1933 right right but important stuff to to convey and to have somebody there to kind of catch some of this stuff um yeah well uh and speaking of sort of visual effects and uh the visual component of sherman's and 
probably all of your work, I would venture, is, is very strong. And I wonder if you do associate that with uh, your father. He, he was, of course, a phenomenal painter and sculptor. I think I uh, encountered his work at the Now Dig This exhibition at the Hammer Museum not too long <laughs> yeah. ago. Uh, yeah, phenomenal. Uh, one of the most important uh, artists that were working uh, and an educator yeah. as well. Yeah, he was. He, you know, my father was a working class artist, you know, did not come from money by any stretch. Uh, you know, his father was a now his his father, my grandfather, was an architect who worked alongside uh, Paul Williams, who is an, a very, very famous African-American architect who designed such noteworthy structures as uh, Encounters at LAX. That thing that looks like a, a oh, alien yeah. uh, spaceship, as well as the <laughs> Beverly Hills Hotel with this iconic you know, signed sure. lettering on the side and everything. Um, but they were, they were very much working class. They were, they were not well off. And, you know, my father always said that an artist has to be able to support his lifestyle. So in my father's case, that meant that even though he was painting and, and doing sculptures from a very early age, he always had a nine to five, which he hated. He always hated his <laughs> nine to fives and he would, and he would never cease to complain about them, but he did them because he knew that he also had to provide for his family. I'm one of six. So, right. uh, you know, he always provided and he also always said that, you know, cause when he started off, you know, like so many painters, he started off doing still life, um, and, and sort of like, you know, very, you know, buildings by the side of, of the sea and that kind of thing. But after the Watts riots, his, his, his paintings became a lot more political. And I think that I, I'm, I hope that I get his, his expression sort of right, but you know, he basically said that, you know, art without any social commentary had no interest to him, you know, like he, he, he had no interest in drawing oranges anymore, you know, like he wanted to do something that would outlast him. And, uh, and he did. And it's, it's great to see, it's weird being the, the son of an artist, you know, I, I saw all the years that, you know, <laughs> firsthand, I saw all the years right. that, you know, we were living pretty lean because nobody was buying his art. And then there were other years when we did pretty well. It was very feast or famine. And I remember the second that he passed away in 2002, the price of his art skyrocketed. And it just felt so unfair. You know, right. like, it's just like, right. you know, I get it. The artist is gone. So there's a limited amount of his material now. Um, and there are no future, you know, schools of, of art for him to, to sort of, you know, enter. So uh, it, it's, it's both. You feel good for your mom because she's able to, you know, between that and Social Security, able to, you know, live okay. But, you know, it feels like a part of an artist's life that he or she should be able to witness. And there's just no way to witness it, you know, yeah. once once you're gone. Um, and it might even be 80 years after your death, you know. Uh, but it's it's when you're gone that your your art goes up in value and price. But, you know, I should say he didn't hate every job. He was an art teacher <laughs> at Spelman College. Uh, you know, anytime he could get a job teaching art, he actually touched a lot of people's lives. You know, like right. he, um, to this day, students will come out of the woodwork and say, are you John Riddle's, John Riddle Jr.'s son? You know, he changed my life. You know, I was about to drop out of high school. And, and the fact that he taught me how to express myself through art, you know, brought me back from the edge or. And sometimes it's it's even more like, you know, like I was suicidal or I, I was going through, you know, some stuff mentally and, and the art saved my life. So he touched a lot of people's lives at Spelman. He was actually the uh, he taught art at uh, Beverly Hills High. Um, he said that was really interesting because, you know, 
it was a lot of, you know, children of privilege, but right. you know, a lot of them had, uh, a lot of them were backwards, you know, and, and, and he would help them all the same. He could always tell who had done drugs, uh, earlier that day, because, you know, I think he usually taught around the sixth period. Those are the kids who would go nodding out in class during the time. So he had a lot of stories from there too. Um, but you know, we, 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 we miss him terribly. There are times, you know, I didn't have children during his lifetime. Um, I have children now and I'd love to ask him for, you know, some fatherly advice. Uh, sure. Yeah. 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 There you go. Well, it, it is, uh, wonderful though that he lives on and his words live on through yeah. uh, what you're doing and to marry the artistic output with a social impact certainly seems to be uh, part of um, all of the things that you're involved with so uh, i think he'd be he... pretty proud of the work that we've done you know even at fallon like where it was nbc and it was also jimmy's personal taste like we didn't do a lot of politics during the obama years you know there was a sort of sense that like okay you know, I'd go so far as to say until the, the last administration, like most people sort of felt like, you know, you would check in on stuff, but it wasn't like a day to day obsession. Right. Um, but to that point, like even at a place like Fallon, you know, my writing partner and I wrote Slow Jam the News, which was, you know, a pretty political, newsy, current affairs sort of thing to write. And we had to straddle that fence of what NBC felt comfortable doing, what our hosts felt comfortable doing, while also trying to deliver you know, something edgy enough that would get people's attention because you can't be completely milquetoast. Sure. And um, and then also you have the roots there as the backup band. And, you know, you want to write something that they'll respect. Uh, <laughs> and I think that we did a good job. And I think that's how we were able to get Barack Obama to slow jam the news uh, with <laughs> us. And we left shortly after Obama did slow jam the news. I know that after we left, uh, they did slow jam the news a couple of times with Chris Christie. And I was so thankful I didn't have to be there for the Chris Christie edition because <laughs> I I don't know what I would have written. You know, I, I got out of there while the getting was good. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think so. Uh, well, uh, I really appreciate you taking some time today, Diallo. This has been just fantastic. And uh, I'm such a fan of all of the things that you're uh, working on. It's really great. Um, I've got the playlist going for Sherman's. And I uh, you got another season of that coming up? We got another season coming. Hey, can I ask you a question? So when sure. you say you have the Sherman's playlist going, is yeah. that on Spotify? Uh, yes, I have it on the okay. SoundCloud as well. SoundCloud uh, was where I first encountered it, but I use usually listen to it on Spotify most of all. Well, let me tell you this: uh, to yeah. anybody, feel free to check out that Spotify playlist. Starting next month, we will be updating it on a monthly schedule, so you won't get all the same songs for a year uh we'll be updating it with new music that influences us and new music that uh new music from uh collaborators that we'll be working with for music on season two. Oh, that's so great. it'll be I... a it'll be a sort of a living community of, of music fans and we're gonna put all the music that we're into whether it's like 60s jazz 70 funk uh brand new uh electronic music from around the world and uh and that includes the uk and africa so yeah, music from all over the Commonwealth. You see how I brought it back to yeah. uh, Megan and Harry? Music from all yes. around the Commonwealth. I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> That's terrific. And you're also doing DJ sessions and things too, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, we were doing it every Friday. That got to be a little exhausting. It's a but lot. Uh, if, if um, you know, if I may, uh, yeah. if you if you follow me at all on uh, social media, I'm on Instagram. It's just uh, at Diallo, six letters, D-I-A-L-L-O. If you follow me there, I'll always let you know when I get on Twitch and on Zoom 
to to play some of the music that we are loving right now. Uh, when Daft Punk recently broke up, people who know me know that Daft Punk was one of my very first loves in electronic music. Uh, we did a three-hour set for that. I think that's still posted on Twitch. You can get a sense of what we do and how we do it. Um, and uh, we always we usually do music around a theme. I think the next theme we might do, ironically, is that there's a lot of really interesting and cool UK hip hop and R and B right now. Um, mm. We're we're in the middle of a wave. It sounds a little bit like the stuff that we have here in America, but you know the accents are completely different. Some of what they're talking about is it can be different. Uh, it's greatly influenced by uh, Africa and the Caribbean, and uh, it's just some really good music. So we were thinking that at some point, um, maybe in the next month or so, we'll do a, a, a Twitch. Usually on Friday nights, a Twitch like that. If we're still in any sort of quarantine or lockdown. You can put it on in the background while you do dishes or dance in your living room. So it'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> Absolutely. I love discovering new music and I love having a new way to do it. I miss flicking through the stacks or based I do on too. the recommendations. I miss that smell. Yeah. I miss that smell, that sort of newsprinty smell off the records. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but terrific. We'll look for that and everything else. Diallo, this has been terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Oh, wonderful. I'm so glad Diallo could join us, and, and for all of his work, it's just great fun. I hope you'll tune in to what he's putting out there. For us, we have a couple of real uh, big shows coming up as well, so I hope you've subscribed or followed so you don't miss an episode. We made it through one year. Certainly changed, and let's hope for the better. But I know some have suffered greatly, and our hearts go out to you uh, from here in the deep night. We're thinking of all of you and remain focused on the idea that although this night is ending, a bright new day is just ahead. Deep Night with Dale is produced and performed by James Bewley, season theme song by Mariam Cadus of Space Moth, season podcast icon by Philippa Beleza, incidental music heard throughout the program by the talented roster at Howler Hills Farm in Ohio. Remember to rate and review the program on Apple Podcasts or tune in and stream the show on Spotify, SoundCloud, Pandora, or Stitcher, wherever you find fine audio content. To see any of our live shows or other short videos, visit our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Radio, and follow us on Instagram at Seaver is the handle. Thanks again for listening, and remember this season to keep your portals open and at a safe distance. <laughs>